I'm going to ask you now to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide. There you're going to see our text uh, that we're going to be going through this morning for the sermon. I'm going to invite Alistair forward. He's going to be reading it for us. Let me, as he comes up, just give you a bit of an orientation to the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, you can see in the first line there, that this is an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, uh, the words that God himself gave Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk wrestles with many questions that you and I struggle with. If God is perfectly good, if he's perfectly powerful, which he is, why is there so much evil in our world? How can God possibly use bad, unholy people and circumstances to bring about his good and holy purposes? which he said he does. The first chapter and a little bit, which we're looking at this morning, it's shaped like a dialogue between Habakkuk and God himself. And in verses 2 through 4, if you look through our text, we tried to separate the text so you can see that. That first section is Habakkuk bringing his complaint to God. He's writing in the 7th century BC, and he's complaining about the evil that he sees, not out there in the world, outside of the church and among God's uh, outside of God's people, but the evil and sin among God's people. Um, God's chosen people, the nation of Judah, had been descending into spiritual madness for generations. They'd forgotten the God who saved them, who brought them out of the land of Egypt when they were enslaved and brought them into the land they were now living. They had become violent. They'd become wicked. They were perverters of justice. And Habakkuk complains to God in verses 2 through 4, God, don't you see? God, God, don't you care? Aren't you holy? Aren't you good? Why won't you deal with the evil among us? And then if you look at verses 5 through 11, God gives his response to Habakkuk. He says, not only do I see, not only do I care, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Chaldean, the Chaldean nation, the Chaldeans they ruled at that time from their city of Babylon. So actually, typically, we call them the Babylonians or the Babylonian Empire. Actually, I'll probably always refer to it as Babylon just because that's a more common name for them. Um, But God's going to send the Babylonians to punish and to crush the evil of Judah. And then in verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk gives a response to God's response, and it sounds something like this. God, are you joking? Like, you you cannot be serious. You're going to judge Judah with a nation that's far more evil, far more sinister, far more unjust than we are? How could you possibly do this, God? And then finally, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, you can see it kind of separated on the page there. Um, God answers Habakkuk again, and he gives the central thought, really, of this whole book, uh, which is this. God says, listen, I know what I'm doing. Yes, the Babylonians are brutal, but to have peace, to, to live the kind of life I've made you for, you do not need to know the answers to everything, but you do need to trust me. Verse four, that's key. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the central idea of Habakkuk. That's the big idea. If you're going to walk away with just one thing from the sermon this morning, it's that the righteous shall live by faith. Alistair. So Habakkuk, starting at verse 1, chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And this is the Lord's answer. 
Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize the dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. And this is Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sings sacrifices to his net, and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and my station myself and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, this is, a, uh, this is a difficult, challenging word, but it's, it's a powerful word. So would you now open our ears so we can hear? Would you open our hearts so that we can believe it rightly? Would you give us faith? Be close to us now by your spirit, we ask, and speak to us. Amen. Maybe you saw in the news the story of Damar Hamlin. He's the Buffalo Bills football player who, during a play on Monday Night Football, collapsed on the field. He needed CPR. He was revived on the field, went to intensive care, and apparently, just following the news a little bit, he seems to be doing a little bit better, but it was a shocking scene. It was totally surprising to everyone who was watching it. And uh, there's, there's not a lot of Americans here, but I want to I commend America broadly, the culture there, because something surprising happened on field immediately after this happened. And that was the players and the coaches from both teams went on the field, and many of them knelt and prayed for DeMar, prayed for the medical staff, prayed for the whole situation. In, in, the, in the stands, uh, this isn't something we're used to in Canada, but in the stands you saw players wearing different colored jerseys gathering together, huddling together, praying for DeMar, praying for the circumstances. And then also really surprising on ESPN during a live broadcast, uh, an ex-football player guy named Dan Orlovsky, he, he paused during the broadcast to offer a prayer for DeMar. 
that's surprising, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it happened, glad it escaped, you know, like the TV delay was really neat. But it wasn't just that Dan Orlovsky prayed that was surprising, but it was actually the way that Dan prayed that I think is actually surprising to us. And so I, I wrote down part of his prayer. This is, this is what he said on ESPN in his prayer. He said, God, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you has impact. We're sad. We're angry. We want answers. And some things we know are unanswerable. See, God's people throughout the ages, they have been variously shocked, bewildered, saddened, angered by the painful things that happen to them or happen to other people around them. There's a sense of shock sometimes to us because we believe that these sorts of things shouldn't happen. They shouldn't happen to us. God's a God of love, after all. He is a powerful God. He's good. So why would such a God that we praise, that we sing about, why would he allow such brutal, painful things to happen in our world on an ongoing basis? And perhaps more sharply, why would God allow these things to happen to his own children, those he loves, those he has bought with the blood of Christ? And so Christians, Christians like Dan Orlovsky, like mothers and fathers in the faith who have gone before us, and here in our text, the prophet Habakkuk, pray this way. God, don't you see? God, don't you care? We're sad. We're angry. We want some answers. And for many, the kind of struggles that that. Christians through the ages have had, it leads them to doubt. It doubt. They begin to doubt God's goodness, perhaps even doubting his existence. And it often goes like this. Their doubt leads to anger or to despair. And from there, people either, you know, they remain inside the church, but they grow indifferent. They grow more cold to God on the inside. Or they might just leave the faith entirely, just saying, I've had enough of this. I'm out. This is the message of Habakkuk. Again, chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, that is, those who have peace with God, those who are accepted, who are right in God's eyes, they shall have life, that is, life in its fullness, eternal life. They shall have true peace, not by having the answer to every question they have, but by having faith, that is, by trusting in God's goodness more than what their eyes can see. And as I said in the intro, Habakkuk begins with this dialogue between God and the prophet. And and this dialogue, it informs us what this life of faith, in the middle of our own suffering and our doubts, what this should look like. We've only got two points today, all right? This is penance for me because apparently last week I had eight separate points, okay? So we're shortening it. We've got two points uh, this morning, okay? And this is the first point. Habakkuk teaches us That faithful prayer, the kind of faith that pleases God, is patiently impatient. Faithful prayer, the prayer that righteous people pray, that pleases God, that's life-giving, life-transforming, faith-building, this kind of prayer is patiently impatient. This is what I mean by it. Um, Habakkuk complains to God in verses 2 through 4 about the evil and suffering that he sees in Judah. And he's been at this for a very long time. He's been at this kind of prayer for a very long time. If you look at verse 2 of our text, you see that. He says to him, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
How long should I keep this up? Habakkuk's nation of Judah, as I said, uh, has been on the slow elevator ride down into greater and greater rock-bottom immorality and wickedness. Things are real bad in Judah. If you look at verse 4, justice on a national scale is just a joke. The law is paralyzed. (coughs) Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth. If it does go forth, it goes forth perverted. And the people who, who remained faithful to God inside of Judah, there were still, there's still a remnant there of faithful people alongside the prophets that God sent, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Habakkuk. Uh, they've uh, been praying, they've been asking God all this time, please intervene, like please stop this plane from crashing. And what it seems to them is that God's just standing idly by, listening but not acting. For generations God's faithful people have prayed and nothing's happened. So what does Habakkuk do? What does he do when it seems like God's not listening to it all? He keeps on praying. He brings the exact same cry to God over and over again. What we're seeing in Habakkuk is the exercise of faithful prayer, that it's patiently impatient. It's patient in that God's people are called to always pray and never give up. Uh, If there's evil or pain or suffering inside of us, outside of us, God wants us to pray and just keep on praying. If that takes days or months or years or decades or generations, the righteous are to live by faith. They're to pray patiently, consistently, and importantly, impatiently. When Christians want to know what faithful prayer looks like, they should go to the scriptures. And there's a particular portion of scripture which teaches us what prayer, gives us some prayer examples. And that's the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms are the prayers of God's people. They're 150 divinely inspired examples of faithful prayer. And what's surprising to many people when they look at the Psalms is that they're not all happy-go-lucky, life's amazing, isn't it, folks, kind of prayers. That's not what they are. They often show us that faithful prayer, the kind of prayer that pleases God, that builds our faith, is patiently impatient prayer. The content and the tone expresses a growing frustration with God's silence and his inactivity, just as we see here in Habakkuk's prayer. I'm going to read to you uh, selections from just three psalms. Just three psalms. Listen to them. Uh, From Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 44. God, why do you hide your face from me? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 22. Maybe this one sounds familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? See, the psalmists, they don't stop praying because God doesn't answer them. Because he doesn't you know, like show himself immediately and come and solve their problems right away. That actually, if anything, just seems to push them to pray even more, more often, more impatiently. Another example of this, another place where you see this, is when Jesus' disciples came and they asked him, Lord, how do we pray? Could you please teach us how to pray? And he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And immediately after giving the Lord's Prayer, which is a perfect model for prayer, 
he gave them a parable, gave them a story to teach them how they should use the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer sometimes in, in some quarters of the Christian church has become this dry, formulaic, you know, uh, kind of prayer. But the way that Jesus teaches it is that it's to be an impatient, insistent, uh, constant, desperate plea for God to answer, to give answers and help now. Jesus in Luke 11, which is where you find the Lord's Prayer and you'll find this story, he tells the story about a man who goes to a friend's house at midnight and he's looking for bread. He's got a bread emergency. Maybe you've had a bread emergency. He's got a friend over at midnight. They're, they're hungry for bread. I'm assuming he doesn't have anything else in the home. You need bread, okay? And so he goes to his friend's house. He yells up at the window. He's, and, and his friend, I don't know if he's peering out or if he's lying in his bed, but he says, go away. My kids are in bed. The doors are locked up tight. I can't help you with your bread problem. But the friend, this isn't a very good knock. The friend keeps on knocking. And he knocks and he keeps on saying, I need bread. I need your, you've got great bread. I don't have bread. Give me some bread. And, and he, he won't leave. He won't stop. Uh, he'll stay outside and he'll keep on knocking. And this is how Jesus concludes. He says, I tell you, though this man will not get out of bed and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or because of his persistence, or because of his patient impatience, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Do you pray like this? Do, do you know that this is what faithful, biblical, God-inspired prayer looks and sounds like? That this is how God himself wants his children to pray? To, to go to God like that friend saying, I need help. I need it now. God, you've got bread. I don't, and I need it now. Maybe there's a prayer that you have prayed. You've prayed this prayer for years, and you've stopped praying that prayer because God hasn't shown up. He hasn't answered. And to even pray this prayer brings pain. It brings suffering to you. It brings shame. It brings doubt that God even hears, that he even cares. And this is what Habakkuk, this is what the Psalms, this is what our Lord himself tells you. Don't stop. Do not stop praying. Write that prayer down. Post it somewhere important. Tell a friend to pray with you, but don't stop. Pray for days. Pray for weeks. Pray for years. Pray for decades. Pray for generations if that's what it takes. Because faithful prayer, it's not rare. It's not short. It's not perfunctory. It's not dry. Faithful prayer is patiently impatient. Second, Habakkuk teaches us that true faith, true faith can express real doubt to God. Uh, true faith can express real doubt to God. Another surprising thing for people when they study the scriptures firsthand is how often people who are considered faithful by God doubt God. It's surprising um, how often people commended by God for their faith, you know, their sincere followers of Jesus, at the same time, these are people with deep doubts and serious questions for God. Jesus' disciple, his, his, his faithful crew, they doubted Jesus all the time. They were unsure what to make of him. They struggled to believe in him. They doubted, and they told him so. There's a story in Mark's gospel of a man who admits to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And we sometimes, I don't know where this comes from, we sometimes think that real faith, the faith that pleases God, it has no doubts in it. Or that real faith, uh, real faith turns us into some sort of like enlightened, stoic monk that can just kind of like float through life blissfully, uh, unbothered by the evil and the suffering either in our lives or in the lives of others around us. But the truth is, the very reason people in the Bible are called faithful is because they're deeply disturbed or they're confused by what their eyes can see and they take these doubts and they go to God in faith and they're completely honest with God about them. And this shows us True faith can express real doubt to God. In his book on Habakkuk, a pastor named Travis Scott, he called the book Faithful Doubt, which is a very appropriate title on Habakkuk. He called it Faithful Doubt. He writes this, True faith entrusts our doubts to the one we simultaneously believe in, yet struggle to believe in. Expressing our doubts to God can not only be healthy, but it can be a major act of faith. Listen, I do want to caution you here. Your doubts on their own uh, are not good on their own. If you forget God's goodness, if you deny what Christ has done for you, if it is causing you to turn away from God in doubt, this is actually sinful and it's soul-killing. The alternative to this kind of unbelief and doubt isn't cramming your doubts deep inside of you, ignoring them, trying to look really religious and put together on the outside when inside you're in turmoil. The alternative to this is a true biblical faith that directs our real doubts directly to God, brings our doubts to him, airs them out. It doesn't avoid God. It brings us to God. This is crucial. Listen to what I'm saying. To be faithful, our doubts must be directed to God. That's what faith is. And we see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, going all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. Here, God responds to Habakkuk's initial complaint, and Habakkuk issues a second complaint to God based on God's response. So in verses 5 through 11, God says he will respond to all the evil that Judah's doing. He does see, he will act, and again, this is what he's decided to do in his wisdom and goodness. He's going to send Babylon. You know anything historically about Babylon? They are not good people, all right? He describes them in the text as being deadly, swift, fearsome. They are a brutal empire. And they're going to be God's chosen tool to deal with Judah. Habakkuk responds in verse 12, if you look at it, I'm paraphrasing, but what are you talking about, God? Like, what on earth are you doing? Like, he's, he's stunned. He doesn't believe that God could possibly do this. But where does he direct these doubts, these questions? To God. He brings them directly to him. That's who he's praying to. When you live by faith, something really odd happens. Your doubts bring you closer to God, not farther away. Your doubts, in a way, they kind of force your hand. God, I'm angry. God, I'm hurt. I'm confused. I want answers. And you've got bread. No one else does. Why? This is a question for you. Why do Habakkuk's doubts bring him closer to God where for many people, when they have doubts, it brings them away from God. Like, what's happening here? How does that work? Habakkuk brings his doubts to God because of this, something very important, something he believes that God is. He believes that God is good. He's confident that God is holy, that God is wise, and that he's dependable. In other words, that God's a good father. 
This is what he believes about him. Look at verse 12. Even in his doubts, he's saying, he's calling God, my God. You are my holy one. He's not just like the Lord in some abstract sense, but he's the rock. Habakkuk believes, he's confident, he has faith that God is his God, that he's, he's personal, that he's close, that he is with his people, that he's for his people, that he's a rock-steady support and protector for his people, that he's the only dependable foundation for them when everything in life is shaking. And it is because of this faith in who God is that Habakkuk directs his doubts to God. Now, this doesn't mean that Habakkuk uh, has no doubts about God's good character, or even that he thinks God's doing the right thing in sending Babylon. It doesn't seem like he does. Habakkuk, though, he has something. He has faith. His faith, and this is important, his faith is not in his circumstances. It's not in his understanding of how God is ordering things, why God is doing things the way that he's doing. Rather, his faith is in God's identity. His identity that he is a good and perfect father, that he's a powerful protector, that he is the holy one who does no wrong, that only does what's good, and that he can be trusted with our doubts, with our suffering. In that book I mentioned, Faithful Doubt, Travis compares this reality in Habakkuk to the kinds of conversations that he has with his young kids when they come to him and they have a scrape or they have a deep cut that needs to be cleaned. We had a cut this morning, uh, and it's something like this. When he has to clean them, when he has to deal with this cut, the kids know that this is going to hurt. Like, it's not going to be an easy process. And, and what happens when they face this pain is they're actually tempted to run away from him, to, to like, freak out, be like, ah, this, this doesn't make any sense to me, <laughs> why you'd have to use soap and hot water, uh, and so they want to go away. And so he always has a particular kind of conversation with his kids, and this is what he does. He reminds them of who he is. This is the conversation he has. He doesn't tell them, this won't hurt at all. It's going to be great, because that would be a lie. And he also doesn't look at them and say, look, okay, fine. I'll do whatever you want me to do. You're the boss. <laughs> you don't want me to clean it? That's fine, because a good father wouldn't do that. A good father deals with wounds. And so he begins to ask them a series of questions. Do I love you? And they, they may respond somewhat grudgingly, yes, you love me. Do you think I want to hurt you? They respond again, perhaps grudgingly, no. Do you know that I'm on your side and that I want to help you? And again, they may say, yes. And then he says, okay, trust me. Trust me now. This requires faith from kids just like it does from us. But the righteous shall live by faith. That's the only way you can live. This is the only way you can follow Christ, by trusting God, trusting his character, trusting who he is, more than what your eyes can see. Jesus understands this. This is important for us to see. Jesus understands this dynamic, friends. Jesus Christ, too, he faced suffering and death. And in the night before his crucifixion in the garden, he prayed an impatiently patient prayer. He faithfully voiced what only sounds like doubt to us. God, is there another way? Is this plan of ours, that I should bear the cross and bear the sin of my people to set them free, is it necessary? Does this have to happen? God, this will hurt. Can you take away my suffering? And on the cross, in agony, in what only looked like defeat to everybody looking at it, Jesus cried out to God the words that we already said from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And we can imagine God the Father responding to his son, asking these questions. Do I love you? Do you think I want to hurt you? Do you know I'm on your side? Okay. Trust me. Let's end here. The book of Habakkuk teaches us that the righteous shall live by faith. In the 8th century BC, Habakkuk taught Judah that they don't live by their sight, by a complete understanding of what God's doing with them and with Babylon, uh, that, that they don't have true life by living in painless ease all their days. They were to live. The only way that they could live is by faith in God's goodness and character. But we have this great advantage over the people of the 8th century BC, over Habakkuk, because we live on the other side of the cross. And this is a tremendous advantage to us. We're recipients of the good news, of the promise that Christ came to save sinners through his death on that cross. And so when we say in our prayers, God, we're sad, God, we're angry, we want answers. When we wonder, God, do you see my suffering? Do you even care? We get to look at the cross. We get to see God's perfect fatherly care for broken and sinful people like you and I displayed on the cross all of God's anger, all of his wrath for all that separates us from him, all of our sin and selfishness, all of our pride and shame and guilt. It was all taken by Jesus for us on the cross. Like Habakkuk, we can say we shall not die because Christ died for us. And so in Christ, by looking, by focusing our faith on this costly act of forgiveness and love for us, for our sins and for our salvation, our faith grows in God's love for us. He will not hurt us in his anger. He's on our side. This God can be trusted. And so now may you who are seeking to begin to live a life of faith, may you by faith walk. May you who, who know this God and his son, may you be strengthened by his spirit to continue to live by faith, though your pain is real and it's pressing. May you always pray and not lose heart. May you offer to God always faithful, patiently impatient prayers. May you express as often as you have them your real doubts to the God who hears. May you know the cross of Christ proves God loves you, is for you. He does not wish to hurt you. He wishes to save you. And may Christ's own prayers, may the cross of Christ transform you so that you can live a life of faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for your peace and your presence. We ask that you would build our faith, that you would help us to walk with you now and forever. Amen.